I feel like constraints enables better thinking, enables broader, more imagination. If you have a lot of things at your disposal, then you're not as imaginative as you could have been. So startups are the perfect lab for these kind of things in which you are surrounded by constraints. You have to make do with like four things. From Dogpatch Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales. I'm Mercy Bell, and on today's episode of Ground Truth, we talked to Outreach co-founder and CEO Manny Medina, who went from being a self-described tech industry outsider to one of the most prominent leaders in the world of B2B sales. This story begins in Guayaquil, a coastal port city in Ecuador, with a young boy standing at the shoreline. He's spending the summers working on his family's shrimp farm. This is young Manny Medina against the Pacific Ocean. He can't yet afford a fishing rod, but he has an idea. He decides to teach himself to fish with three simple tools, a piece of nylon string, a small weight, and a hook. He quickly learns how to feel the nibble of a fish simply by the piece of nylon tugging on his finger. That sense of feel, born out of necessity and constraint, will eventually make him a better fisherman. Triumph through limitation would become a recurring theme in Manny's life. A love of computers would catapult him to the U.S., but he'd land in New Jersey, a world away from Silicon Valley. Without any connections to the tech world, he'd make it out west to join Amazon. And again and again, Manny would meet limitations or disappointments, and he would return to his instinct, his curiosity, the feel of the moment, the proverbial tug on his finger. But for all of Manny's undisputed success, most currently as CEO of Outreach, He often says he's uncomfortable calling himself an entrepreneur. To Manny, his whole life has been about ideas. I didn't know I was going to be an entrepreneur. I actually don't consider myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself a guy with a good idea and a good team. I didn't become aware of computers until I went to college in Ecuador when I took a class on C and I realized that you can write anything. Anything that you think you can make, you can write it and the computer will do it for you. And that just blew my mind. You mentioned realizing that where you were, you weren't going to be able to build your own thing. Like, what was the drive, the impetus, instead of the start there, is to say, I have to get to the U.S. because I want to build my own thing. Tell us about the genesis of that. It's really the curiosity, right? Very similar to your business, right? You find a thread of interest and you follow that thread and then you want to see where does it take you, right? What else can you do with it? So you figure out how to sort lists and then you can you build a database. And if you build a database, can people use it? And will you get paid for it? And the answer in Ecuador is no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, so that stops there. And I just didn't want that feeling. And I also, back in the mid 80s and early 90s, just entrepreneurship wasn't a thing, especially in Ecuador, right? Like, your, your, your destiny is to get a cushy job and have a house on the beach and maybe two cars and take vacations and, and just lead a quote unquote normal life. And I just, I'm not interested in that. Even now, I'm not interested in that. Like, I, own very few things. I'm very interested in the intellectual challenges that come with running a company and starting a company. So I'm fascinated by everybody else's work. I'm fascinated by what we do. That's the kind of things that drive me. So I couldn't be in a place where material things were the end goal of life. So I left. It almost sounds like just the fact that there was a known end state was a problem for you, like that you could see it could end. 
was the problem. Exactly. In 1994, Manny completed his engineering degree in Ecuador and set out for the U.S. His first stop was the East Coast, where he attended the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. He was excited to study computer science at a level that would have been unavailable to him at home. But even more so, he was ready to embrace American culture and learn for himself just how far he could go. The way that the U.S. was sold to me via movies and TV shows is Baywatch. You know what I mean? I'm just going to come in and it's gonna, everybody's just going to be wearing Speedos and bikinis. Everybody's fit and just running around and things are easy and the problems are minor. New Jersey is not Baywatch. It's gritty. There's some rough spotches. Newark has, has great food, but it also has some rough neighborhoods and beautiful people. It's just coming to Newark was a great transition for me because I didn't have to leave my Spanish-speaking sort of surroundings. There's people there who could deal with my accent or switch to Spanish if I had trouble. So coming to the U.S. was a bit of an awakening in that there are seasons. I wasn't used to the winter. And there is a sense of anything is possible. If you think it, you can make it happen, right? And it was so exhilarating to like be in a place like this where anything that came to mind was a real possibility. You can see it. If you put your mind to it, you could do it. So it took me a while to sort of get used to thinking bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So a lot of people ask me, why do you have to get two degrees? Because I have two master's degrees, so I'm computer science and an MBA. And the degrees for me were, were stopping points for me to stop, look, think, sit back and think bigger. And because I'm not used to being in a land of abundance, I have to force myself to think bigger and to think about getting myself out of my own box and think in broader terms. After receiving his bachelor's degree from the Stevens Institute, his first job was with Bell Atlantic, which would later be acquired by Verizon. There, he helped build out the company's massive billing system. But for those first few years, he was still in the U.S. on a student visa. It allowed him to work in the country for three years before he would have to apply for an H-1B. But he was unable to obtain a visa through Bell Atlantic. He wanted to remain in the U.S. So Manny went back to school on another student visa. This time, he was going for a master's in computer science from the University of Pennsylvania. All the while, he continued working at Bell. Manny says he learned more than he could have ever imagined when he first took the job. But he also started to see the limits of his coding skills and realized it was time to, as he puts it, think bigger. He enrolled at Harvard Business School and in 2001 received his MBA, just before the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Almost overnight, the job market dried up. Every company that would normally line up to court a freshly minted Harvard MBA was now unable to hire anybody. But he managed to land an interview with Amazon, and it was an experience that would change his life. So first of all, Amazon wasn't a big deal back in, in 2003. It was a small company. But the interviews were grueling. And, you know, it was even harder to interview at Amazon that was at Goldman Sachs. And who are these people? You know, like, who do you think you are? And they were really intellectually stimulating. So I was really, you know, taken by, I think it was John F. Kennedy that you said that, you know, we're going to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Like, I, I, I stuck with the Amazon interviews, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. And when I got to Amazon, it was really interesting because they talk about the flywheel. You've probably seen the flywheel of like more selections give you more audience, which drive down prices and that brings more selections and the sellers, et cetera. That flywheel was not working in 2003. And in the middle of this, they decided to launch the, the web and they decided to, to launch Amazon Video. So mind you, this is 2000, 2003, 2004. And 
our flywheel is not turning and we're starting three new businesses all at once. So that appetite for what is possible and, and not having to sink into your risk and fully believing that the flywheel will turn was my biggest learning out of Amazon. And it's fortuitous that I got there because I, again, I didn't think that I was gonna end up in, in tech again, but seeing the impact that a good idea with good execution and good understanding of the fundamentals of how things actually work really was a breath of fresh air. At Amazon, nothing is a strategic, everything is tactical. Like you make this one thing five cents cheaper, you know, you, you get the site to stay up, you know, one millisecond faster. And that was, that was the level at which we talked about to Jeff. Jeff will take pet projects around like, why is the checkout pipeline getting stuck on, you know, every million items? And that was a thing that we would have to talk about. And, and, you know, he will sit down in like in interface reviews and, and, and really, you know, minutia stuff because that's what's important. And that's, that was what I really consider my true MBA. It was my time at Amazon. That first principle is almost like you're back to fishing with nylon again at Amazon, like getting down to the... Exactly. And do, any, any interesting stories of the time of like pitching to Jeff or him getting into the details or any, any meetings like that or any interesting stories from that time? So... Jeff is very intense. And funnily enough, nobody talks about this, but funnily enough, his intensity varies with his sugar level, or at least at the time he did. So, you know, you try to get the meetings like right around, you know, after a meal or around when the times when the cookies are delivered. Because you know, if you catch him at a good time with sugar highs, he's going to be very constructive with his feedback. If you catch him at a time in which the sugar is low, he's just going to throw you out the room. And, you know, and wonder why the fuck is that he has you around. There were two periods that were really interesting uh, when I was at Amazon. I was there in the meeting where he lost his mind. And he said, I will never have a PowerPoint presentation again. Everything will be written. Everything will be prose. And you could see his like, train of thought. I'm like, this is incomplete thought. You're coming to me to finish your thoughts. You can't do this. We hire you for full thoughts. You're giving me half thoughts. I want full thoughts. So from now on, everything you're going to write out in full form. So that was pretty special to see. The second thing that I remember him saying that really shook me was, I think he asked for a decision and the manager or the leader who, who was in charge of the decision, he said, well, I didn't have time to make it. I just didn't have the time, the bandwidth, et cetera. My team is, you know, you know overworked. And he said, well, you're, you're, you're buying it. Every decision is a decision. You're either buying or you're selling. So you're either going long or you're shorting. So by not making a decision to deciding that the current state is worthy of doubling down. So no decision is a decision. And, and, and if you don't have time to make it, then be conscious that you're doubling down on that decision. So that creates a really interesting framework in your mind as to what are you doing, right? Like that makes you reevaluate the way that you think in general. And that at all times, you should be able to say like, should I stay current state? Because you're doubling down on the current state. And when you were on the, what is now AWS team, I guess with, with Andy Jassy and, and the early team members, do you remember any approaches or strategies that sort of, employed this flywheel principle even back then? The way it seemed to me, and again, I, you know, I wasn't privy to all the meetings, but the way it seemed to me is that AWS was the answer to a series of questions. I was in a meeting where Jeff asked, are we the largest retailer online? The answer is yes. If we're the largest retailer online, are one of the biggest websites out there? The answer is yes. So if we know how to run infrastructure for the one of the biggest websites out there, shouldn't we know how to run infrastructure for the majority of the companies out there? And shouldn't we be more efficient than somebody else doing it on their own? And the answer is yes. So then that set off a, a number of exercises around pricing. 
And at the end of that exercise, you realize that not only we can cost it on a per, you know, per drink, but we can also make that cost go down over time by, you know, ju just by getting bigger. And that is Amazon's like special sauce, right? Like they drop cost before the market pushes them. And that keeps all the competition sort of in check by doing that. Though he spent just three years at Amazon, the breakneck speed at which the company was growing was definitely taking its toll. He received a call from a former Harvard classmate working at Microsoft. Amazon was very intense. And frankly, I, I, I needed a break. <laughs> I, needed, I needed an easier gig. And it was one of those business development gigs where they needed a guy who was, you know, who had a, a bit of a finance background. I happened to work in finance when I was at Amazon. And I took the job and it was, it was you know, it was kind of like, you know, shifting down a little bit in terms of like the hours and the intensity by which we run things at Microsoft. But then eventually they caught onto the cloud and my team moved to, to, to start doing deals for Windows Phone. And that's how we got into sales. And then it got really intense because Microsoft was bent on making Windows Phone a success. Again, I saw the other side of, of being relentless. In this case, you know, it was something that didn't win. It lost, actually. But the determination of seeing of, of what Jeff calls being tactically impatient, but strategically patient, and saying, look, the, 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 the end goal is worth this journey, and just stay with it, was sort of what cemented with me when I was on Windows Phone. It sucked. It was like pushing a rock uphill. It was, you know, the, the organization was a little dysfunctional. But the people individually were great. And I love working with those people to the point that a lot of those people are now working at, at Outreach. And then one day after, you know, one last release, I was driving into work and I had what I call a Jerry Maguire moment where I, I stopped, I pulled over and I just called my boss and I said, I'm out. I, I, didn't have an, I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have, you know, an idea. I, I didn't have a breakthrough. I'm just, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And he talked me out of it. He told me to take a sabbatical. He told me to take a month off. And I did. That's when I met Andrew Kinzer. <laughs> And, and we started riffing on ideas. And then I came back and I really quit. And tell us about some of these, similar to what you described, some of the learnings from Amazon. What were some of the sort of key principles that stuck with you in a constructive or positive way from Microsoft? Microsoft had a deep effect in me in terms of the value of engineering. So, you know, Windows Phone was the negative experience that I had, but I worked in Xbox for a little bit. And, and Xbox, you know, did relatively well in terms of like catching, you know, closing ground with PlayStation. And, and, and Xbox was sort of, Xbox and Windows Phone were both like engineering-led organizations. And the, the problem is in Windows Phone was that the engineering decisions were all generally correct, but it was in absence of the market dynamics. So it's one of those things that I, I have to, I, I got to see one inning of a multi-inning game at, at Microsoft. But it informs my point of view, informs the fact that, A, you don't have to be first in market. You can be second in market or third in market, but you have to bring something different into the market and still be able to be relevant. And that informs me how I think about outreach in general, right? Like, we were not first in market. Now, we came with a different point of view, right? We were heavy on automation right from the very beginning, and unapologetically so. And some of our competitors would, like, use that against us, right, and say, oh, you don't need automation, right? You, well, you don't want to, you want to be human. You want to, you don't want to be a robot. And we're like, that's, that's nonsense. Like automation is here to stay. And if nothing else, we're going to get more automated, not less. So, you know, the human needs to find its, its rightful place in the workflow, but a lot of the workflow is just going to get automated. And you guys know what I'm talking about because, you know, the non-automation argument sort of, you know, got, got good play for a little bit, but you know, here we are. 
some people still still trying it. I think hear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You exactly. hear it all the time. Exactly. And so you, you met Andrew. You were sort of alluding to, to the beginnings of, of outreach. What was the Seattle startup scene like at the time? Here you are coming from these two giants in Seattle where a lot of people sort of think of the Seattle tech scene as synonymous with these two companies. And, and you're thinking about going off and starting a company. Walk us through what Seattle startup scene was like at this time and the journey of meeting Andrew and, and starting outreach. I, lo- I love that question. So the Seattle startup scene at the time was very gritty. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of it. It was, it was so like, I don't know, Wild Westy. So I'll give you a couple examples. So when Andrew and I started, started sort of riffing on ideas, there was a guy, a guy that we both knew, and that's how we got introduced. His name is Dave Chappelle, like the comedian, but it's not the same person. And he introduced us, and Dave Chappelle was running a company that eventually got acquired by, by Amazon. And, and Dave Chappelle started cre- created this group called Hops and Chops. And this was literally a group for wannabe entrepreneurs, it wasn't like Silicon Valley where there's just a thing that you do and then you, you know, you're at the Pete and in Palo Alto, you meet a, your co-founder there and then off you go. And it, it, was, it, was more, it was more about just putting your ideas out there and see who bid and, and you know, doing a lot of startup weekend events and, and then just trying to get with like-minded people. So it, it, it wasn't super like a structure like it is in Sand Hill Road where you have all these different you know, VCs and the interest, you know, the intro culture exists. It was very inorganic, and you either pitch to Madrona or you pitch to Founders Co-op, and that's it. I think Maverick was there, Ignition was there, but those were the sort of like mainstay VCs. So Andrew and I get into Techstars, and, and we decided to pivot our idea because the idea that we got into Techstars was not a great idea. Manny and Andrew's first idea was a hiring platform called Group Talent. It struggled to get off the ground. After three years, it became clear they would need to look outside of Seattle for funding. So Manny decided it was time to move to the Bay Area. The interesting thing is that in Silicon Valley, there will always be somebody who likes your idea. Whatever idea you have, there will be a person, or maybe two, or maybe five, or maybe 10, who will like your idea, and that usually turns into a term sheet. Here in Seattle, like if you're not in one of the theses that either you know, Madrona, Ignition, or Maverick have, you're toast. Nobody will give you money. So that experience at the time, like now there's more, right? That experience at the time made me realize that I had to be in the Bay Area to raise if I was going to get the company off the ground. And I had a goal every week of pitching, of not only pitching, but getting a check. So every week I would get at least $10,000 of investment from somebody. And I wouldn't know who that person was, but I, that was my goal. And if I, we continue that up, you know, every week is $10,000 every week is $40,000 a month. With $40,000 a month, I keep the company in payroll. And that's how long it took us to get to, to the average prototype that eventually took off. But the, that doesn't exist in Seattle. You, you see what I mean? In, in San Francisco, having, being an angel investor is kind of a cool thing, right? It's, it's a thing that you go and you tell your friends and be like, hey, I angel invested in this company. And it's like, oh, really? Tell me more about it. It's a thing that people talk at bars. It becomes like a badge of honor. Here is so risk averse that you, you'll never see that. We're, we're back to Ecuador where you see the end of the funding road. There's two investors. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna go where I can expand and find the new road. That's exactly right. You could, you could see where it's gonna end, and I don't like that future, so I'm I'm out. Here's where Manny's story takes yet another turn, and he finds himself once again learning to fish without a pole. One afternoon, as they sat with their team, worrying about how the company was burning through cash and struggling to develop a predictable sales model, they stumbled on a new idea. Everything in sales starts with a meeting. If they wanted to increase revenue, they would need more meetings. 
So they set out to build an engine that would do just that. Little did they know how this simple and intuitive realization would forever change their business. I remember this clearly. We made it like a, a day, two days offsite. We went to Gordon, who used to have an apartment downtown, and, and, we, and we sort of like mapped out what are the elements of our hypothesis of meeting generation. So one was, you know, personalized emails. The other one was follow-ups. And, and then the question was, how do you personalize an email? And it's really hard to do that, or at least at the time, it was really hard to do that programmatically. I mean, you, you guys have nailed it, but at the time we didn't have that, that kind of insight. And so what we did was on the back end of the workflow, we built a little marketplace for writers. So we would have writers come in and submit their application to become part of this marketplace. Imagine a split screen on your monitor. Once you typed in a prospect's name, all of that person's information would appear on the left side of the screen. Their social media profiles, blog posts, LinkedIn reshares, you name it. And on the right side was an email template that included group talents value prop, as well as an opening line and subject line introduction. The writers would then find creative ways to plug that information into the template and hit send. Manny and his team would then measure the performance of each email tracking the number of replies, which helped them score the writers and decide which ones they wanted to keep using. By closing the loop of how well these this emails were doing, we were able to sort of like call those writers into a smaller set of writers that, you, that we know were quality. So, and we had all sorts of people. We had like, you know, the guy who was in law school who, who, who wanted to sort of, you know, get some side money. There was a guy who was a comedian who was a stand-up comedian and working on his act, but he needed to make a little bit of money because he didn't have any other source of income. That guy was killing it. And all of a sudden, you know, once we got the machine going and the whole, the whole engine going, like the reply rates on cold emails was like 40%. And, and, and we actually quickly tipped to the, the next problem, which is, okay, now we're swimming in meetings, but we're not converting those meetings. So, you know, Andrew and I were like, what are we gonna do? So we decided to try to sell those meetings. So what if we go to an agency and say, hey, you know, I know you're, you have all these contracts. What if I sell you the raw material that becomes, that becomes a candidate? And the agencies were like, yeah, that's really interesting. How, do you, how are you getting these qualified meetings? And we're like, well, we build this engine in the back end that, that helps us generate the meetings. And people were like, stop. I want to buy that engine. So after you know, 20 of those or 50 of those, we decided that we need to go build the engine and sell it. But that's sort of like the, the, the steps that got us into, into the workflows. And then eventually we sold to... AppDynamics and Cloudera to the recruiting teams. And the recruiting teams were like, you're wasting your time with us. Like, you know, there's five of us, there's 200 salespeople. You should go sell to the salespeople. And that's where we really put one and one together. We're like, you know, we should really be doing this for sales. As you started to get, you know, more strategic about building the business, how did that journey of involving, you know, more institutional money change the building of the company? So that's a fun story, actually. As we're building that engine, I'm actually getting really good at, at racing from angels. I'm really good at this game of like every week I race from a person that I didn't know before at a higher valuation than the week before, $10,000. And I'm kind of liking this lifestyle and we're almost break even because it's only the four of us. So I see that with my founders. I, we had a board meeting with, you know, Boris and, and Chris and, and they were like, so, you know, how, you know, this seems like it's working. How are you going to scale it? And I'm like, we're just going to sell more. His team disagreed. Tired of living on the tiny salaries they paid themselves, they convinced him to try and land some investors with deeper pockets. Manny reluctantly agreed, but he insisted 
he would pitch no more than four VC firms. He was secretly hoping it would fail. But a conversation with MHS Capital would change everything. Uh, MHS sort of took me down this line of questioning that sort of made the engagement really challenging and, 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 and really interesting. And eventually I was like, look, I, I think I can partner with these people. I think that these are people that, that, that are really going to understand what we are about and, and our curiosity and, and need to bet bigger without, without asking for, you know, optimizations too early. That's the thing that we're always afraid of. It's like, is, is somebody going to ask me to optimize too early? They understood our bigger vision. They understood what we want to do. And we eventually took their money. But it wasn't, it wasn't a deliberate effort to go out and like raise cash. I was actually against it. I, I wanted to just go at it alone. What are some of the most interesting use cases you've seen from outreach customers with either really creative or exotic uses of data to power their playbook? Palo Alto Networks is one of the few companies that I know, actually, and now is Stripe as well, that has data science team in the go-to-market team. So there's a data science within go-to-market that actually provides data to them. And, and by having a data science team, they're able to see patterns not only on the top of the funnel, but also in the middle of the funnel and the close part of the funnel, where they can see if a deal gets stuck, you know, what are the actions that you can take to get a deal unstuck? So that allows them to create sort of like, you know, triggers and reminders and all sorts of things for the sellers to go take action based on where, how the deal is trending. If you were to push the boundary out and just what do you see outside of that edge? Like, what do you see the more modern version of outbound becoming over time? So the, the part that you can squint and see it, but it's not going to get adoption, is sort of like where you, are, where you guys are going, can the machine do the storytelling for you in written form in, or in your case, in visual form? And, and sort of create the pitch that lands to the narrowest persona set in such a way that is relevant and creates a learning moment. And I think that that's a boundary. I think that most people are not ready for that because that's a quintessential human quality. But I think that's where this is going. And because the, the machine will never lie to itself as to what story is working, what's not. Humans are just a bag of biases. And you, if you will see your last thing working, you will say, I'm killing it even though the only thing that worked is that last thing you did as opposed to the things that you've been doing over the past two years. So this ability to be very precise and very exact about the impact and the return and the, and the success of your story, of your pitch, of your value prop is something that eventually machines will be better at it once, once the full comprehension of knowledge and, and visual representations are, are, are available. I just don't think that it's going to get a lot of success. What do you see some of those barriers being like? What are the what are the steps we need? Like you you hit on part of it, right? With the the same things that tell us that what we're doing is better than what a machine can do, our own biases are the same the things that tell us that the machine isn't as good at certain things. But what are some of the other barriers you see in the way of that world? I think we have to hold the hand of the operators and sort of sort of like walk in step by step. It, you know, first of all, show them what's working and what's not, and then show them alternatives. So for instance, you know, in, in Intent, which is the, the piece that we've been working on right now, we're going to show you that you know, the majority of our objections are competitor-related or price-related or person-related, right? And each of those have comebacks, right? And, and we're not doing this right now because we feel that it's, it's on the other side of, of, of people being ready. We're not going to suggest to you what to do yet because I'm, I'm not going to go tell you you know, to over to overcome a pricing a pricing conversation, you should go do this, you should go do that. That's still considered part of being a seller. You see what I mean? 
So you have to sort of like chip away at this facade of like what makes a great salesperson over time and 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 just you know present the seller with more success. And the more success that you give them, the more they're gonna trust you. But you can't make this mental leaps of like, you know, I'm just gonna compose emails for you automatically and that's just gonna work for you. You're just gonna sit back and just get the results. People are not ready for that. The other thing is that machines are not ready for that either. So the moment you see one mistake, you're gonna be like, oh, this is whole thing is bullshit. I'm out. I'm just going to go back to writing this thing manually myself. You see, where in reality, you know, 90% of them really worked. So because of this anecdotal way of living and within the lack of real data, we're not going to be able to pierce through this. So you're just going to have to chip away at it very slowly, right? Like, for instance, the way you guys are doing it, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to create a visual story that is going to be very compelling because it's going to land. So you're not threatening because you're not removing the seller and you're measuring the outcome of that. So walking that line of like, you know, what is, what is, quintessentially believed to be human versus what is it you can do better is going to be always a thing that we're going to have to work on. Are there any other emerging trends you're seeing around, like you mentioned, measurement is the key here, right? If we can expose and show any emerging trends you're seeing around that, you know, inside or outside of outreach on getting better at how we measure, getting away from the anecdotal world that you described. So the, the, the operating word is attribution. So what can you attribute? So can you, can you show that whatever you did is incremental? And that, that problem hasn't been solved because that problem requires for us to like think in like, in like causal terms, like X causes Y. And most of our minds are wired to think that one, only one thing causes another. When in reality, it's five things that have some kind of degree that cause the other. You know? And until we don't upgrade our thinking in that you know, there's several lines of causality into an outcome, we're going to be stuck in this world of, like, of silver bullets, of like the one email, of the one call close, or like, you know... I send this amazing PDF that just got everybody together. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and the stories that we tell each other kind of reinforce that. So again, we're going to have to slowly educate the market over time of like, you know, how do you think about causality? How do you think about attribution? And how do you think about incrementality, et cetera? Our interview with Manny took place as the coronavirus pandemic was surging in a number of U.S. states. After months of lockdowns, work from home mandates, and yes, Zoom calls, States were slowly starting to lift restrictions and open back up. The Black Lives Matter movement was gaining momentum across the country, and companies were rethinking their own internal policies and practices. Manny believes the social change catalyzed by these two seemingly disparate events will have a lasting impact on how we live, how we work, and how we sell. I think it's vastly different. I think everything has changed. So... For starters, COVID sent every seller to be an inside seller. And in the past, when we were selling outreach, people would be like, yeah, that's great for my inside sellers, but my outside sellers are different. They show up at shows, they close the other restaurants, they go to golf courses, bar mitzvahs, and just get it done by the power of the relationship. That gig is up. That game is over. I don't think anybody's touching anybody else for the next year or so until a vaccine comes available. And it's going to be a fundamental shift in how people buy and sell. And it's going to bring what Forrester has been forecasting for the last two years forward in that you will need sellers, but the sellers are going to be, have to be super informed. And they're going to have to be more solutions architect than sellers. And that people are sitting at home, plenty of time to do research. So the sellers are just going to have to add value right away. And the whole empathy and problem solving is going to have to come in real strength. I think mental health is also coming to the fore. People are becoming tired more often, having the kids at home without being able to go to school. It's going to create a new wave of caring for your workers that are at home. So all companies, including ours, is thinking of not coming back until the end of the year and even longer. And whatever you thought was going to happen and it was going to end, it's not going to end. 
we're going to have to dial up how do we care for our employees. And it's not going to be, here are some programs, sign up. We are even considering things like, are we going to like ask everybody to stop at noon and, and take a break, like a forced break? We're going to have a company-wide meditation session for the next 30 minutes. It's posing a really interesting set of questions that we haven't thought about before. I also think that this Black Lives Matter movement is finally here to stay. And for me, it feels like a, a triumph. Tech, unfortunately, is very male, very white. And that's not the environment I grew up in. So I feel like I'm not at home yet. I lived 20 years in Ecuador, and Ecuador has the spread of color. And I just don't see that in tech. So I don't feel like I'm at home yet. And this movement of Black Lives Matter has brought it up to the fore, and it's a perfectly good emergency to take action. It's forcing everybody to think about the issue. People are going out and protesting. I think Black Lives Matter is just the beginning of it. I think there is so much that we can do, and, and I, I feel like I finally have like societal license to take a very strong action. So from training my employees to talk about what is it like to be an anti-racist, what is privilege, how do you deal with that, why is that important? And this is one of those that what I'm trying to navigate is how do I not use the impetus to take an action to make something that is not long-lasting. We decided two and a half years ago that we're going to tilt the ratio of male to female to 50%. Why? Because the world looks like that. This is what's so interesting. Just measuring by itself has incredible amount of power. I haven't done anything in the company to move the number forward other than just hire executives that are female and talk about it. And just by talking about it and measuring, it's taking care of itself. See? So we can do the same thing with just one more click on diversity. Is you measure it and then you get to it and then people will fix it just by measuring it. You see? So that's what is very encouraging to me. I have four direct reports, three of them are women. And outreach itself is 60-40 right now, 60 men, 60% men, 40% women. And, and we're making positive, active progress there. And it's getting better and it's getting better every day. Why? Because we started two and a half years ago and we measure. And the same thing is going to happen with people of color. As he looks back on his career, Manny says it's hard to imagine that kid from a port city in Ecuador could be in the position he's in now. He has a chance to not only run an influential tech company valued at more than a billion dollars, but also has a platform to speak and even impact a changing America. I never imagined I would be here doing what I'm doing right now. I think that what I would do differently is that I, I, would, I would be more principled. I would be more, more I, I, w- I would always be more, more tied to the things that I believe to be true unless I'm proving otherwise. I, I, I let myself be swayed by other people growing up and I, and I think it's common and normal. I, I would just try to do less of that. I, I remember, I distinctly remember, it's one of those moments that you, like, you close your eyes and you see it, reading a paper when I was in grad school getting my master's in computer science by one Sergey Brin and Larry Page about the importance of backlinking in search results and how you know it was it was it was sort of like you know it was an experiment you know with a bunch of like you know heuristics and and I was like oh that's that's really interesting I, w- I wonder what the application of that is you know I I I I could have taken a bet I could have you know I don't know if outreach would exist today if I would have taken that bet you know if I would have just moved west and embraced my inner geek I would have been doing something different I would be probably rich and working for Google but. But you know, you know, it's it's hard to 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 do the counterfactual of like what would have been if I didn't do this, because you know it also takes away the learnings, my family, my my mistakes that made me who we are and who I am, and and you know the life that I live. But I, I would just embrace that that curiosity a lot sooner and just go with it. Some of those lessons you learned along the way, and maybe how they manifest themselves today at, at outreach, like 
the flywheel concept from Amazon. Like we saw that early in the creation of of templates, but you know, how does that how does that manifest itself today at Outreach? So in, in exactly those ways, in that you know we're we're a, we're a you know we're a customer led organization, but we're mostly a, a product led organization, and that you know we are overweight on on product and engineering. We were you know we spend north of forty percent of our revenue in R and D because we fundamentally believe that even though we make we're going to make some mistakes, we're going to build some stuff that people are not going to like or not going to use. This constant drive and push to enable what's next and make the rep more successful and make that customer interaction more successful and make that and make our customers customers happier and more fulfilled it's a true north and and getting there is worth the cost it's worth the effort it's worth the mistakes that was Manny Medina co-founder and CEO of Outreach he's always kept his finger on the pulse of the market while keeping Outreach on the cutting edge of innovation Manny encourages his product development team to always be looking for what's next, knowing that some of their new products will ultimately fail. But he says that constant push to enable innovation will always be worth it. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Clearbit. Clearbit is a marketing data engine that helps you deeply understand your customers and build a hyper-efficient growth engine. We've known the team at Clearbit for about four years now and use Clearbit data for all our own projects. Just about all of our customers rely on Clearbit data to cut through the noise and focus their go-to-market teams. We've seen so many examples of Clearbit really helping their customers better understand their sales and marketing funnel. And some of their customers are able to get really creative with their sales plays. For example, we worked with Segment, one of the world's leading customer data platforms. They're using everything from Clearbit Reveal to understand which companies are on their site from anonymous traffic, Clearbit Technographics to understand their technology profile and how good of a fit they would be for Segment, and Clearbit Prospector to identify the ideal contacts at each company. Thank you to Clearbit for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Clearbit, visit clearbit.com. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Advisors, written by Jack Buer from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from StudioPod, Editing and mixing by Noda Lab and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Treeline Studios.